Well, as I uh, finish getting set up here, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Excuse me, Exodus, thank you, Exodus chapter 4. Still haven't got that out of my system. May it never be that I get Ephesians out of my system, but I'll try to get our (laughs) place correct. Exodus chapter 4 is where we're going to spend our time. Four, Actually, 4 through 6 is where we're going to spend our time this morning in God's Word. And as you open your Bibles to Exodus, we are reminded that we have concluded the commissioning of Moses. And that he begins his journey back to Egypt under this commissioning and under the Lord's promising to be with him. He's be, he's go, he promises to be with him in spirit as well as in physical signs and wonders. And as he does so, he's going to uh, interact with God's people, his brother first, and then the elders, and then the Israelites beyond that. And so at play this morning is God's gracious commitment to Abraham to provide a people according to the flesh to fill a good land, and that this is to be fulfilled corporately so that the disobedience of some would not remove the Lord's commitment, but establish his perfect character. And all this would not undermine the greater heavenly end where Abraham's descendants will populate a new heavens and a new earth through his promised offspring. Let us take a moment to ask the Lord's help in prayer again this morning. Oh Lord, we give you praise this morning for your word. We ask that you would help us now as it comes to us by way of a clay vessel. May you work through these stammering lips that your truth may be heard. O Lord, may that which is not comporting to your word be quickly forgotten. And by your spirit, may that which is true to your word be received as your word, so that we may be blessed in this, and that we would not just be hearers, but doers also, by the power and work of your spirit, in the name of Christ, we ask these things. Amen. Well, my kids might tell you that Uh, My favorite part of vacation is going home. Uh, This isn't pious. I just like my bed and my pillow in my bed and my comforter. Uh, I like my couch. I like the comforts of my home over than the, uh, well, uh, not in my vacations, but the potential luxuries of vacations. But they might know that besides going home, another part of vacationing, as we vacation in our van and we do road trips, is my affinity for bridges. I like a good bridge. I like to cross a good bridge. I like to see it from afar. I like to take a note of its architectural uh, beauty, as well as uh, how it spans this gap that was once impassable. Maybe it was those spaghetti noodle bridges I made in school that grew me appreciation for what goes into this engineering of it. But we see that in a bridge that, and is that we have two foundations on each side, that the bridges aren't connected to faulty foundations, but they have to have solid foundations on each side, and that this road is stretched ac- across some treacherous valley or some expanse of water that was impassable or at least much more dangerous before this bridge was constructed. And the overcoming of a once impassable route is 
a something of a beauty to me, as well as a little bit of anxiety and entrusting yourself to that engineering when you're on it, especially those narrow ones where you get to see over the edge and take note of what could become of you if that engineering would be false or that the Lord would not uphold that bridge while you were on it. Or a passage this morning is like a good bridge. It begins and ends with foundations of God's faithfulness spanning over the treachery of all the human components. Not only Pharaoh, but the Israelites. Not only the Israelites, but Moses himself. We will make also observations from the expanse of God's providence on the display on display through his revelation. We'll take note that as we take a look at the Israelites from above, as we, as we look over this scripture, we know the beginning and we know the end of it. And so we have the benefit of God's revelation. We have the benefit of knowing God's decree for the Israelites. And for them, we see it played out in his providence. And so we have this benefit as we look upon the Israelites, but we can't uh, stop there. We must know that much like the Israelites, we find ourselves in treacherous valleys, crossing metaphorically expanses of water in our own life, so that we ha should have the same focus of them, that we should have a focus on God's providence in those times, seeing how he provides us the travel from safety to safety. And so we also will, will see that in these failures, we will seek to answer the question, what does it mean to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? We are familiar with Christ's words in Matthew 6, where teaching the crowds in the Sermon on the Mount, he exhorts them not to worry, saying that what, we what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We may have been encouraged as we talked a little bit about that last week, about other encouragements of what it means to seek the Lord here we're asking the question, what does it mean to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Well, uh, we want to know that uh, how is this done, and we also want to know how is it our defense against worrying about tomorrow? Well, I'll give you the end. I'll spoil it all by giving you the end at the beginning. The answer is, remembering who the Lord is, is to remind us of his providence so that we would know that all things come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. And so be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. And if you like that, you'll like our catechism class because we go over this catechism answer and question there. But the answer is in God's providence that we would know that all things come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand, so that we would be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. 
If you have your Bibles open to Ephesians 4, I'm going to read for us the first four verses of our passage, beginning in verse 27 of chapter 4 through verse 21. Now the Lord said to Aaron, go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed low and worshipped. So here we have Moses meeting with Aaron. A joyous reunion of probably 40 years. Moses, 80 years old. Aaron, now 83. They're reunited here, where? Not in any happenstance place, but in the very place where the Lord revealed himself to Moses and where he will eventually fully, in, in a greater way, also reveal himself to the Israelites at the Mount of the Lord, at the mountain of God. And, and he reveals to Mo Aaron the plan that God has given him and the tools by which God has given him to execute this plan. And they take joy in this knowledge. And so they take it to the elders. And we see the elders' response. Their first response is that they believe Moses in Aaron's account. They believe that the Lord had visited Moses. They believe that the Lord would be delivering them out of Egypt. And when they hear of the Lord's concern, they actually bow low. They prostrate themselves and worship the Lord there they f we find them worshiping the Lord. This first section of our passage, these words for us, reveal to us that beginning foundation of God's faithfulness where he had promised Moses, they will listen to you, Moses. They will hear you. They will believe you. I will put words in your mouth and you will speak. And Moses' objections that we went over, though not deterring God's faithfulness, though requiring correction, the Lord provides Aaron to him. Aaron to speak on his behalf so that Moses would have confidence. What a gracious and merciful God we serve to do such a thing. And he does so because he will redeem his people. He will accomplish all his holy will. But these words for us are both to be an encouragement and a warning. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We haven't got into all the history of the Israelites as will be the foundation for 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But there is parts of it that are alighted to and alluded to our section here this morning when the Lord is to deliver the Israelites with his outstretched arm and mighty hand. We see in verse 6 that it says that now these things happen, speaking of the history of the Israelites, speaking of God's interaction with the patriarchs, pretty much the whole Old Testament, the, or the whole Old Testament, not pretty much, the whole Old Testament. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. 
Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And then there it is. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. We're going to see not all these failings of the Israelites this morning, but we're going to see some pretty big ones and big, big ones from Moses even. And we can't stay upon that bridge of, of God's revelation, so to speak, of God's overarching uh, revelation of his decree to them and say, oh, pity, pity, Israelites, you could have done so much better. No, we are to think as this is to be a warning to us, but also an encouragement. It says here that these are an example. The word used there is actually a type. It could be more literally translated. They also give it to, are given to us as a type. And so they are for us to be a picture of what would come later in substance. And so they are to be an encouragement to us that as we see the Israelites and we know the whole plan of their deliverance, that in that we see our deliverance, that the Lord was working all things together for the good of those who love him. How easily we forget that and we, like the Israelites, may grumble and complain. And may it not be that we turn to be idolaters, though some of us may fall into that as as our confession says that God for time may allow us to go into sin only to discipline us, to bring us back into uh, obedience. And so take heed that he does not fall. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. We are on the precipice here of that valley of that span. Let us establish the reality here that as we get into the depths of this valley with the Israelites, that their hope is not for them to get themselves out, but for them to see God's providence and to see his faithfulness. Let us go back to Ephesians chapter 5 this time and continue in our passage. 5.1 continues our narrative. It says, And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh. They first come with a demand, and then they second come with an appeal. Their demand is that uh, Pharaoh let God's people go and worship him to celebrate a feast. We remember 
Moses' interaction with Jethro, and he gives Jethro that low bar, right, that low example. I want to go back to Egypt, Jethro, so that I can see if my people are still alive. Jethro's response is softened by the Spirit of God. Is say, he says, go in peace. Here, Pharaoh, hardening happening by God, though willfully hardening himself also. Pharaoh says, get back to your labors. This demand is to reveal the lack of justice in Pharaoh's court. Pharaoh was to be a just king. He was to lead according to what was revealed to him in the light of nature. And so he should know that he should uh, rule rightly. And here the appeal to, or the demand to him is that they want to go uh, to celebrate a feast to God, but it is a command of God that they would go and do it. And not just any God, but Yahweh. They invoke the name that was given, that Moses was given to out of the burning bush. And what is Pharaoh's response? Who is Yahweh? Who is this God? Because as where Pharaoh sat, Pharaoh sat and said to everybody else, I am God. Who is this Yahweh that I should listen to him? Where are his borders? Where is his court? No, Pharaoh says, no, the Israelites are my possession. And they're my possession for my labors. And so Moses and Aaron come to him or uh, in that same moment, appeal to him a second time. This appeal is to reveal Pharaoh's lack of mercy. For now, they don't refer to it as, as a command of God, but they said that now let us go because if we don't go, Yahweh will be upset with us. It's a three days journey into the wilderness. We're going to sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will punish us with the sword. Pharaoh shows himself to lack mercy here. Hardening his heart further, he rejects their request. And Moses and Aaron are turned away. And they would need to be bolstered by understanding of God's providence. Because what happens here is that they come into conflict with Pharaoh and Pharaoh's response is what we will see is one of harshness. Pharaoh isn't indifferent. He doesn't say, I said no, and they go away without punishment. No, Pharaoh will seek to punish the Israelites on behalf of Moses and Aaron's request. And ultimately, he will punish the Israelites on behalf of the Lord's command to release the Israelites. So Moses and Aaron must be bolstered by an understanding of God's providence because we see that God often leads his people not through the quickest nor even the perceivably safest, but always the best way to their journey's end. I'm, I wonder if Moses and Aaron thought, why won't he just let us go? It would be so much easier if he would just let us go. Let us go and worship God. But according to God's ends, his path was not through ease, was not going to be through quickness, 
or safety, but the Lord's path for the Israelites and the Lord's path for Moses and Aaron would be one of uneasiness. They will be put to the, to, uh, in front of the ire of Pharaoh. They will be put in front of the anger of the people. They will be subject to ridicule. We see that God leads his people not, often leads his people not the quickest nor even the perceivably safest, but always the best way to their journey's end. And we need not doubt our path, for it is ruled by the providence of God. As I said, our answer to the end comes to us uh, uh, through a, paraphr a paraphrasing or a, uh, a editing of the Heidelberg Catechism. Number 27 asks the question, what do you understand by the providence of God? This coming as an explanation of the first phrase of the Apostles' Creed, which is, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So the answer to one of those questions before was that God rules in his providence. Well, what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. We could add there Pharaoh's response. Deliverance out of Egypt. All come to the Israelites through his fatherly hand. And so for us, our great uh, concern, our great comfort is that that is the same for us. A very important follow-up question is asked in the next one. It says, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. We don't know if Moses and Aaron took comfort in this in that moment. We do know that later on they give evidence that they weren't in a different moment taking comfort in it. For they question the Lord and his doing. But for us, we see the importance of God's providence when we come up against these things in our life that don't go according to our plan our desires, our wishes, the path we thought would get us to X, Y, or Z. But certainly our eyes should be beyond those temporal things and upon the heavenly reality of our future home so that we would see all things working together in that way, in God's hand, knowing that in anything, nothing will separate us from his love. Our narrative continues in Exodus 5, verse 5. And again, Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors? So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, You are no longer 
to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they are making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it because they are lazy. Therefore, they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men and let them work as at it so that they will pay no attention to false words. Pharaoh is doubling down on his commitment to opposing God. He opposes his name. Now he opposes his word. The taskmasters in verses 10 through 14 execute this plan with harshness. They beat the foreman when the quotas are not met. They they come upon the people of Israel. They come upon them with harshness. And so we see here that as it relates to these people who at one point had proclaimed their belief in Yahweh and worshipped him, they bowed low and worshipped him at the end of verse 4. They are now coming into direct connection to God's plan for their deliverance. And we're going to see that that plan that they had was not the plan that God had. And so what we notice is in that first seedling of belief in verse 31 of chapter 4, we now see the devil's response to it as an example typologically to those that profess faith in Christ. Our A.W. Pink says, when the devil recognizes the first advances of the Holy Spirit toward a poor sinner, he at once puts forth every effort to retain his victims. At no place is the frightful hostility of the enemy more plainly to be seen than here. No pains are spared by him to hinder the deliverance of his slaves. Satan never gives up his prey without a fierce struggle. When a soul is convicted of sin and brought to long after liberty and peace with God, the devil will endeavor, just as Pharaoh did with the Israelites, by increased occupation with material things to expel all such desires from his heart. How many times have we seen it as to those that maybe we've had opportunity to share the gospel with, and we see their response, initial response to the gospel with, is with praise the Lord, hallelujah, let's go to church. And then we recognize, and then we see as uh, the cares of this world prop up in their life. We see the heat of persecution come upon them from family members or from friends or coworkers. This is the work of the evil one to keep those in, in whom he's enslaved. And many of them, as we see in, uh, with the Israelites as an example, fall away in those moments will get to us, for let us not forget that though we have been uh, redeemed by Christ, we're held safe in his hands. There is nothing that Satan can do to touch us as new creations. Yet though in every renewed conviction of our heart, every renewed instance where we seek to obey the Lord, we find very close at hand our flesh, the world, and the evil one. The narrative continues in 15 through 19, because now we have the Israelite foreman, their first uh, opportunity to 
express their concern or express their dislike for the response of Pharaoh comes when they take their case before Pharaoh. But his response is the same. He tells them in verse 20, he says, uh, when they left Pharaoh's presence, oh, and then they left Pharaoh's presence in verse 20, and they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. They said to them, may the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious, that is, a stench in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Gasp. What was first received with joy and worship is now handled with disdain and unbelief. The Israelites don't go to the Lord with their concern as they had prior. They, they reveal their, the, the direction of their heart by going first to Pharaoh. And then they come across Moses and Aaron and they, and they, give, him, they give them a tongue lashing also. What was first received with joy and worship is now handled with disdain and unbelief. Turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Let us see how this is to us an example, is to us a type in the hands of our Lord. In Mark chapter 4, we know uh, if you've, if you've made it there, you know this passage well. If you've read your Bibles, it is the parable of the seeds. The Lord uh, began to teach the crowds again by the sea there in verse 1. And he says in verse 3, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And later the sun had risen. It was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell in the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100-fold. And he was saying, he who has ears, let him hear. If we did not have the furtherance of God's revelation, we would be just like the disciples who said, please explain this to us. God graciously does so in verse 14. The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are those on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world... 
and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. We have a warning in the first two soils. Those that have received the word with joy, those that have heard the beauty of the gospel and said, I want to go to heaven. I want riches. I want the benefits of Christ. I want my life to be better. Maybe it's, it wasn't the gospel they were offered and they were offered a false gospel that all things would go well. But if you've spent time here and you've heard that the true gospel is one in which you now enter into the life of Christ, which is also a life of suffering, that we may receive his benefits, we find that you may not believe it. There are some that will reject that, will think, well, let's, let's do this, let's receive it in joy, and then the cares of this world, the persecutions that come, the deceitfulness of wealth will choke it out. We see that in the Israelites. We see that they had received with joy the word of Moses and Aaron and they had worshiped the Lord, but at the first turn of persecution, at the first turn of uh, tragedy and suffering, they turn away. But what about those of us who have truly believed in Christ for our salvation? I think the first thing we must recognize is that we are not immune to the same temptations. We are not immune to the temptations to let the cares, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, the affliction or persecution that arises because of the world. That we're not immune to those temptations that they would, that we might desire to be led away. We may get caught up in those things. That we may find ourselves trying to gather those things and trust in them for our hope. Many Christians are given the opportunity in Sunday worship to affirm, I believe in God the Father Almighty. This is all well and good, but we do not actually know that we truly believe in such a God until Monday faces us with experiences which suggest that he is far from Almighty and pretty unfatherly. Testing has its place and purpose, and this applies not only to the outward trials of adversity and circumstantial difficulties, but also to the individual realities of besetting sins, temptation, and the ceaseless warfare of the spiritual life. We often uh, say in, in some of our uh, conversations, Monday's, Monday's coming. Monday is a different day than today. We recognize that is the, as the Lord's Day comes to a close and we start thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow, what we had laid aside maybe today in order to celebrate the day according to conscience. It's still there. It's still waiting for us. And we may, at the sight of it, even think that the Father is fall from our Almighty and that He is pretty unfatherly. Oh, that we wouldn't think that, but how, how, what is the Lord's answer? What is the Lord's safeguard from us to be succumb to such some temptation? Let us see his answer to the Israelites in Exodus chapter six. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of this land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But, my, but by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them and gave them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Further, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from your bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Israelites, Moses and Aaron had forgotten who the Lord is. The Lord was gracious to remind them that he is the Lord. He is not just the Lord of the Israelites now, but he is the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he is not the Lord, as Christ said, of the dead, but of the living, and so he is the Lord over all things, even death. He is the Lord of their covenant and by which he promised to give them this land and establish them in it. The Israelites and Moses had forgotten who the Lord is. They had forgotten also what the Lord had said, that he would deliver them. That he would bring them into the land. And so they had also forgotten who they were, that they were the Lord's that he had claimed them as his own, that his possession, that they were not possessions of Pharaoh, that they were possessions of the Lord and so would be kept by God. It concludes here where the people don't respond with a renewed sense of endurance, but they remain in unbelief. This is the generation that falls this is the generation that doesn't see the promised land. They will ultimately serve as a full example of us who spurn the Lord and his work and his promises. They remain in unbelief, and Moses and Aaron begin to follow their lead. Oh, that we also, in our own temptation, in our own troubles and trials, would also follow the lead if it wouldn't be for the Lord. As he acted upon Moses and Aaron, so he acts on us. For he says to Moses and Aaron in verse 13 of chapter 6, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land. The Lord graciously and kindly and fatherly disciplines Moses and Aaron, as he does to us when we are led astray, when we fall to this temptation. The Lord will bring us back. The Lord will discipline us as a good father and bring us back and remind us who he is, remind us what he has said, remind us who we are because of it. 
One of the primary ways he does that is here and now as you attend to these ordinary means, proclaiming from here in our songs, in our liturgy, in the reading of God's word, in the reciting of creeds, in the singing of praises, that the Lord is the one true and living God. He is the one in whom all being dwells. He is above all acts of man. He is above all turning of elections. He is above all decisions of your boss. He is above all your mistakes and your temptations. He's above all your laundry and all your parenting, both the good and the bad. And he has said to those that are his own, to those that hold Christ by faith, that he will keep us till the end. So as we've made it to the depths and hopefully have seen then the Lord's faithfulness there at the end in verse 13 to Moses and Aaron where he doesn't reject them and he doesn't, he doesn't uh, put them away and start all over, but he rebukes them, he charges them, he disciplines them. So we too may remember who the Lord is to remind us of his providence so that we would know that all things come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. And so be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning that though we, like the Israelites, would be quick to fall away, to reject you, you in Christ, under the banner of the new covenant, have redeemed us and so have held us, not because of our faithfulness, but because of your faithfulness, not because of our good deeds, but because of the righteousness of Christ, not because we deserve it, but because all that we deserved was laid upon another. Oh, Lord, that we would take joy in this knowledge. That we may seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. We thank you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.